morning. It's good to uh, see some faces, some brethren with us that we haven't had the opportunity to have with us in a while. And it is uh, very wonderful to have our guests amongst us this morning. We want you to know that you are indeed our honored guests. And uh, please do make sure that you make me out a visitor's card before you leave and a name, uh, uh, yeah, well, a name, obviously, right? Um, a, a phone number and an email would be good on there as well. This morning, we are going to conclude a little three-part sermon mini-series on biblical fasting, a subject you don't hear much about, but you've heard a lot about it, or at least you did last Sunday. Last Sunday morning and last Sunday evening, we talked about fasting in both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And because we have a number of folks with us this morning who were not able to be here with us last Sunday for those two very foundational, very fundamental lessons, I believe a fairly detailed review is in order. And seeing as how this is a subject that we don't talk about that much, a fairly, review, fairly detailed review is probably a good thing anyway. So we're going to talk about this as to whether or not New Testament Christians should fast. If so, when, why, and what for, as we conclude this little series. But first we'll talk about that review. I would like to encourage, because I don't have time to preach three sermons this morning, any of those who could not be with us last week to go back and to listen to those prior two lessons. The first one was not able to be live streamed last Sunday morning, so it is only available at godswordistruth.org in an audio uh, version. The second one can be seen on the church's Facebook live stream at that address or simply listen to an audio version at godswordistruth.org as well. Last week, we discovered from the Old Testament that fasting was never meant to be a substitute for godly living, Isaiah 58 verses 1 through 11. We also learned that fasting was commanded by God only once. This is key. It was commanded by God as a specific commandment or requirement only once under the Mosaic law. And that was on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, and chapter 23, 26 through 32. In those verses, fasting was repeatedly referred to as afflicting one's soul. And that was a biblical phrase that we saw is synonymous with fasting. We noted that it is a synonym with fasting from places like Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 35 and verse 13, Psalm 69 verse 10, and Isaiah 58, both verses 3 and 5. However, just because fasting was only specifically commanded once, and that being during the annual Day of Atonement celebration as God's people celebrated his love and, and forgiveness and the atoning sacrifices for their sins, because it was only commanded on that one day does not mean that's the only time that we saw people fasting in the Old Testament. In fact, we saw that they also fasted when seeking God's love and forgiveness, as, as we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 13 through 18, and we noted 1 Kings 21, 17 through 29. 
We noted last week from the Old Testament that they also fasted when at war or with the threat of war from Judges 20. We noted that they fasted when facing overwhelming fear or anxiety or deadly danger. Second Chronicles 21 through 4 and one that's very familiar to all of us is Esther chapter 4 and verse 16. We noted last week as we talked about this that they also fasted when loved ones were sick, dying, or had died. We noted two examples from 2 Samuel, one of them when David fasted after the death of Saul and Jonathan as well as after the death, or, or uh, not after the death, but during the time when his child was dying in chapter 12. We also noted that they fasted in times of deep personal sorrow or suffering. Nehemiah, when he heard about the condition of Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 1, 1 through 4. And we noted how they fasted when deeply sorrowful or genuinely remorseful over sin and spiritual rebellion. We went to Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, and specifically, and talked about how the, well, we went to both of those passages, but we talked about how the Ninevites fasted because they were remorseful for sin. And, and so there's a lot of fasting going on in, in the Old Testament. Now, that's easy to understand when, again, we understand what fasting is. Fasting isn't to lose, it's not a diet loss. It's not a diet weight loss program, okay? It's not what fasting is. Fasting is abstaining from food, and as we've seen from some of those scriptures, other things, other earthly things, for a given amount of time to focus in intensely on God, on seeking God's help, on looking for guidance, on, on all of those things that we're talking about up here. It was a time to put aside everything earthly and focus in solely upon God in prayer and to become laser focused on that one thing. It is about abstaining from food and or other earthly needs, wants, desires, and distractions for a period of time. The Apostle Paul mentioned this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. It is a time, as I said, to focus in on, on God's direction and help and strength and forgiveness and all of those things in one's life. Last week, we saw some of that fasting-induced strength evidenced by and reflected over the life of faithful widowed Anna in Luke 2, 36 through 38, as well as the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we looked in Luke 4, 1 through 3. We saw that as he was relentlessly tempted for 40 days, he relentlessly fasted over that time period. And we asked the question, wow, if he needed to, how much do we need to focus in on God in those times of deepest temptation? We learned from Jesus' own teaching that fasting, I'm sorry, yes, that fasting is a very humble, very personal, very private, just between you and God kind of thing. The same as personal praying or personal giving of alms and all of that's in Matthew 6, 1 through 18. Saw an example where it wasn't acceptable because it wasn't private and personal in Luke 18. We also saw that it was a given, and this is, this is something that New Testament Christians need to at least make note of, that Jesus Christ fully expected that his disciples would fast, and we talked about some of those texts at length. We saw how fasting was such an important part of the life of the Apostle Paul 
that he considered it to be one of the identifying marks of his ministry in those two passages. And finally last week, we saw how the New Testament church, the Lord's New Testament church, the church of Christ that we're a part of, that was established on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD, we saw how that church, the Lord's first century church, fasted as they worshiped, prayed, and in preparation for new missionary works in Acts chapter 13, one through three. We saw also how they fasted in conjunction with such important spiritual and congregational matters as the installation or appointment of elders in Acts 14, 21 through 23. So, with all of those examples of fasting by God's people in both the Old and New Testaments, and as we mentioned last week, with the Lord Jesus Christ having taught more on fasting than he did on baptism or communion, which he did, and with the Lord Jesus Christ having fully indicated that he, that he expected his disciples to fast, he said several times, when you fast, not if, then the question becomes for us as we go into the application phase of what we've learned last week, this morning, then why don't we hear more about it? And why don't we do more of it as his disciples? Why? Let's get into the us application of all of this. Well, personally, I think one reason why is because of the hectic schedules we all have to keep to live in this day and age. The thought of taking three hours or five hours out of some of our days to, to put away the news feed and our devices and away from work and away from family and away from all of those things and just, just, just totally, totally get to the point where it's just us and God for three or four hours. That sounds like, wow, how do I fit another three or four hours or whatever into my busy schedule? And I think that's one reason that we don't hear more about it. I think that's one reason perhaps that we don't, why we don't do more of it, quite frankly. But I think another part of that answer, in addition to those we have already discussed, lies in the fact of this. That fasting is never specifically commanded in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it is never specifically commanded that you fast. In fact, it is a strictly voluntary thing because there were no compulsory fasts ever specifically commanded by God under the New Covenant. And you know, we've all got so much going on in our lives and in our, in our religious lives and in our, in our secular lives and in everything that we're doing and, and all that's going on that it's like, okay, well, if that's one more thing that maybe isn't commanded, then I'm okay if I don't do that. And, and you are, you're okay. It's all right, it's not required, God didn't command it, no preacher, no elders, nobody should command that you have to do this because God never did, not for his New Testament people. But here's the thing, I want you to really listen close. Just because something is not commanded by God in the scriptures does not mean that it is not beneficial for God's children to partake of. Let that really float around for a minute. Just because something 
it, we see in the scriptures is not specifically commanded by God does not mean that it therefore has absolutely no blessings or benefits to offer the child of God. Think about it. I want you to consider with me for a moment by example this. We know, as we've already covered, in the Old Testament it was only commanded once on the Day of Atonement. And yet, as we have covered, God's people fasted a lot more than just when it was commanded. And, and we saw that it was beneficial. We saw that, that there were great benefits that went with it. Even though it wasn't commanded in all those other cases, they did it because it was incredibly beneficial to them. And, and I want you to also consider with me that just because something isn't commanded by God doesn't mean it's not beneficial. I want you to think about how that plays out with something else. Let's get away from fasting. Let's look at, look at this truth when it comes to some other subject. For example, what about this one? What about this? Fellowshipping and being together for the express purpose of learning God's word with other children of God on a daily basis on a daily basis. Is that ever commanded in the New Testament that we must be together to learn God's word and fellowship every single day, daily basis? Is that commanded? No, it's not commanded. Is it a good thing? Would it be beneficial if we were? Absolutely. Uh, really. Based on biblical examples of God's people doing exactly that, we can see that it would definitely have its God-given blessings and benefits if we were to be together every day. For example, turn to me in your Bibles this morning, if you would, to Luke chapter 19 and verse 47. Luke chapter 19 and verse 47. Please turn there. As I've said many times, don't trust me, trust God. Look it up. Be like the Bereans. If Paul was not offended because they checked him out, I'm not offended if you check me out in the Word of God. Matter of fact, I'd prefer you did. Luke chapter 19, verse 47. Look at this. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. Yes, I know they're seeking to destroy him, but the thing I want you to see is he was teaching when? Daily. Daily he was teaching. Now, we're not commanded to get together to teach and learn and fellowship daily. But just because we're not commanded doesn't mean it's, it's, a, it's not beneficial. In fact, look at the benefit. Look at the very next verse. And they were unable to do anything for all the people who were very attentive to hear him. Did a lot of people hear him? Is that a benefit? Even though it wasn't commanded, that's a good thing. And we see this again and again when it comes to the same subject. For example, turn to me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Very familiar passage. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Daily. Breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Is there any benefit to the church being together daily and being happy and fellowshipping and doing these things? They were, look at verse 47 for the benefit. They were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily. Those who were being, wouldn't it be awesome if we were adding to the church daily? Wouldn't it be awesome if it was added to the church weekly? Not W-E-A-K, but, you know, W-E-E-K, okay? Yes! Well, they were doing it on a daily basis. This was the benefit. 
Because people saw them eating together and saw how, how happy and joyful they were and, and saw what they had going on in their lives and, and saw this love and this family. And so even though we're not commanded to be together daily, we see their example and that it was beneficial to them. And, and brethren, we, we have to know that it would be to us. Turn to Acts chapter 5 and verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Well, what possible benefit could that have? <laughs> Chapter 6 and verse 1 tells you exactly. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, I, I love the scripture, it doesn't say they were adding to their number. Now they're way beyond adding, they're multiplying. That means a whole bunch more, a whole lot more at a time. But notice how all of these verses of the benefits flow right out of the fact that they were together daily and the next verse says what a benefit that was and, and I got one more I want to share with you and that's in Acts chapter 19 look in Acts chapter 19 and verse 9 that should say verse 10 not verse 20 sorry Acts 19, verse 9. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them, withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Trent. Daily he was teaching. Daily they were doing this. What possible benefit could this have? Verse 10, not verse 20 like the slide says. I'm going to talk to the guy who put the slide together, by the way, after services, because he should know better. All right. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jews and Greeks. Awesome benefit. Now just for clarification's sake, just for clarification's sake, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3 does say that we are to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I understand that. But it still doesn't say we have to meet together, and that specifically it doesn't. Can I... I mean, in those days, it was a little bit harder, but I mean, can I exhort you today without coming to your house? Sure. I mean, we can communicate so many ways it makes your head spin, okay? And I realized they couldn't do that then, but, there's, uh, but, but at the same time, there's no specific requirement that they meet together daily. However, as we see from Scripture, there can be absolutely no doubt whatsoever that there were incredible blessings and benefits when they did that, even if it was not specifically required that they do that. For all of us who have had an opportunity to spend a week at Green Valley. How many of y'all have enjoyed a week at Green Valley Bible Camp? Raise your hands. Everyone. I don't care how old you are, how many years. I want to see it. This is not raising your hands. This is raising your hands. Okay. We, we know what it's like to be together for a whole week and, and daily we're learning and we're growing and we're talking and we're studying and we're sharing and we're doing all those awesome things. For those of us who have gone to, to PTP, for those of you who have gone on a mission trip, there's several of you here that have gone on mission tri trips and for a whole week or a week and a half you're, you're studying and you're fellowshipping and you're teaching and, and life is awesome. We know without these scriptures, we know that being together daily is a wonderful thing, even though it's not commanded, it's awesome. And what I want to suggest to you this morning with all of those examples is the same thing's true with biblical fasting as it is with daily fellowshipping. Just because it's not specifically commanded does not mean that it is not incredibly beneficial. And to completely ignore the whole thing of fasting and just say, well, it ain't commanded, so I ain't going to worry about it. Okay. But I think we do ourselves a terrible disservice. And I think we, 
we rob ourselves of, of some of the strength that it would give us to put the world aside for a few hours, be it food, be it anything else, and just simply focus on God. I think the scriptures are very clear about that. So in light of that, when exactly then should we each consider, should we consider, think about personally fasting for our own strength and benefit, when, when should we consider it? Well, same sorts of situations that we saw God's people did in the scriptures, which is the lengthy list I went through at the beginning of this service. Whenever one is, de is deliriously grateful or desperately in need, and therefore is as serious as they've ever been about seeking God, his help, his guidance, his intervention, or his direction. As to group fasting or congregational, and again, Acts chapter 13, as to congregational fasting, again, the same thing is true. When should we do that? Well, as we saw in the scriptures, perhaps in conjunction with the appointment of elders, Acts chapter 14, wouldn't be a bad idea. I mean, it's a scriptural example. We're not commanded to, but it's a good example. When's another time that maybe we ought to consider congregationally fasting? And again, again, now, now hear me out. I'm going to tell you this later, but I'll tell you now. That does not mean required. Okay? Some people because of health reasons. Some people because of jobs. Some people because of things they just simply have no control over can't always do it. Okay. And it can't be required anyway. God didn't. But... As a congregation, those that can, perhaps, as we're preparing to undertake a new missionary effort. That's what they did in, in Acts 14. I'm sorry, that's what they did in Acts 13, 1 through 3, before sending Paul and Barnabas out on their missionary journey, when they were preparing to undertake a new missionary, a new missionary effort, a new missionary effort. Like maybe door knocking? Just a thought. Let me ask you a question. I know sometimes, and we're gearing up for this October 8th nationwide door knocking day, and, and I know sometimes door knocking can be kind of, uh, you know, one of those deals. And, and we can sit back and we can say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not yielded a lot of fruit, maybe a little bit, but, but it's not been, you know, real effective or whatever terms we want to put that in. And so we say, well, what good does it do or whatever? Let me ask you a question. Instead of saying, let's not do it, how about this question? How about what do you think would happen if we did it a little different? What do you think would happen, based on everything we've studied in the scriptures about fasting, what do you think would happen if Thursday night or Friday night there was a bunch of us that said, you know what, for three hours, for four hours, whatever, Thursday afternoon, I am going to put aside everything. I'm going to fast. I'm going to abstain from everything worldly. I'm going to shut my devices off. I'm, going to, I'm not going to eat. I'm, not going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to set it up so that I have about three hours to just study, not study, to just pray about our door knocking, to pray that God will lead us to the right people, to say the right things, that God will, will, will bless our efforts and add the increase, and that, and that we're really, we need to show God we're serious about it. What do you think about half the congregation did that, or the third, or how many ever can on a voluntary basis? Do you think maybe based on what we've studied in the scriptures, that might help? I'll tell you what, I don't think it would hurt what they did in the Bible. Commanded? No. Blessing? Yeah. Yeah. Just a thought. I mean, like I said, they did it when they were preparing to take on a new missionary effort. And again, some can't work, health reasons, whatever. But, but I want you to think about this. 
We tell everybody we have this great God. We have this awesome God. We have this almighty God. We have from him the greatest message ever given to man. Amen? Amen. Okay. And, and, and we tell everybody, you know, Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, that God's word will not come back to him empty, that it will go forth and do what it's supposed to. And the question is, yes, do we, we believe it, but the question is, do we believe it? Are we willing to put our efforts where our claims are? Are we willing to get out there and put it to the test? Because if we are, then would it not seem wise to first seek God's blessing of our efforts through prayer and fasting based on what we've studied? The people in Ezra's day thought so. In Ezra chapter 8, chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, it says this. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God, notice fasting is humbling yourself, to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. I want to stop right there before I get to the last sentence. Did you catch it? Ezra said, Proclaim to fast that we might humble ourselves before God and, and seek his help. And, and here's why. He said, because we've told the king that God honors people who are sincerely doing his will. If I may paraphrase, I've read you the text, okay? And so he said, what I don't want to do is go back to the king and tell him we need his protection because we've already told him God will protect those people that are doing God's will. So it seems kind of hypocritical of me to go back to the king and say, oh, by the way, yeah, our God will protect us, but can you give us horsemen? So he said, no, tell you what I did instead. I had the people... Proclaim a fast. We got real serious real quick about focusing in intently and abstaining from all these earthly things and we just focused, we humbled ourselves before God, we proclaimed a fast in order to seek from him the right way. Listen to this last line, Ezra 8, 21 through 23. So we fasted and entreated our God for this and he answered our prayer. That's what happened. The final and perhaps most vital two points that I want you to make sure that you take some of home for application this morning when it comes to fasting for people today. Two points that I believe need to be firmly ingrained upon our, our hard drive and, and stressed. There are some outside of the church who will seek to say, well, if you don't fast, you're not a Christian. Well, we've already seen fasting is not required by God. But I want to suggest to you that another consideration for those who would say such a thing, well, you, you got to fast, it says you got to fast, and you got to fast, and, and blah, 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 okay? I, I want you to think about this if you're ever confronted with that. Let's go back to where we first began. As we talked about, two chapters in Leviticus, fasting was required in the Old Testament only once on the Day of Atonement when it was called afflicting one soul. And in those two passages, if you go back and reread them, or maybe remember from our discussion of them, they were to afflict their souls, that is, abstain from food, but also to abstain from other things as well in order to fully 
focus in on and celebrate their great forgiveness on the Day of Atonement. Y'all with me? That's what they were to do. They were to abstain from work as well. In other words, they were to fast or abstain from or let nothing worldly come between them and their worship celebration of God's atoning sacrificial system for their sins. What about us? Do we have a day where we celebrate our at-one-ment with God as New Testament Christians? Atonement, at-one-ment. Do we have a day where we celebrate that? Sure, Sunday. Lord's Day, birthday of the church, anniversary of the Lord rising from the, the tomb. We see, all, we see in, the, in the Bible that they came together on the first day of the week to, to partake of, of communion. The day that we as New Testament Christians get to celebrate our at-one-ment with God, <coughs> I think applying the Old Testament Day of Atonement and not letting anything get in the way of that by fasting, abstaining from certain things, I think that our day of at-one-ment with God, we need to celebrate that or be prepared to celebrate that in such a way that we don't let anything else get in the way of that. The Bible bears this out in Hebrews chapter 10, 24, and 5. Now, now I understand, please, I've got a little asterisk here. I understand there are some people who have to work Sundays. They, they just have to, okay? Preachers work Sundays. Newsflash, right? So do doctors. First congregation I was in, one of the doctors there, one of the ones that's responsible for a lot of things I learned early on as a Christian, became an elder later, an elder later. But I can remember worship services where he had his beeper on, okay? He delivered babies, right? I can remember he'd be leading singing some Sunday morning and all of a sudden his beeper would go off and with some woman that was ready to have a baby and he'd say, can you finish these last three songs for me and turn around and flip me the songbook and head out the door? Well, he had to, the baby wasn't waiting. I mean, come on, he had to go, right? And, and doctors and, and firefighters and policemen and, and, and I understand that all of that, I, I truly do, and, and I don't believe that's, that's the issue here. Some people are ill and it's beyond their control to meet, but listen, as far as it depends upon us, if we're going to insist that physical fasting is a mark of biblical Christians, then shouldn't we make sure that we are spiritually, that we are spiritually fasting by making sure that we're abstaining from a lot of things to be together with the church on Sunday? That makes sense to everybody? I certainly hope so. We need to do what's within our control. And that's a, a, a phrase that all of us can, can use however we want and need to and work out our own salvation. But as far as what we're in control of, we need to be willing to abstain on the great day of at one month that we celebrate from put a lot of other things that we can put secondarily, secondarily to be together with the Lord's people and gather about the table. There was a similar problem in Isaiah 58, verses 13 through 14. Turn back there with me, would you please? Isaiah chapter 58. Verses 13 and 14, look what God says. These people had tread the Sabbath underfoot, as it were, kind of held it down like you would to, to, on an animal's neck or something. God says this in Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. He says, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, in other words, take your foot off the Sabbath, stop grinding it into the dirt, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. If you stop doing that and call the Sabbath a delight, a holy day of the Lord, honorable and will honor him, 
not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasure, not speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the hills, high hills of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord is spoken. When you look at verses 13 and 14, the people were, were using this, this Sabbath for their own pleasure. They were using it to do what they wanted to, the way they wanted to, and God says, you gotta stop doing that and put me first. That's basically a, a very loose paraphrase of verses 13 and 14 of Isaiah. On a similar line, can you imagine a congregation of the Lord's people wherein the leader of the church absolutely requires that the service, that the preacher's part, or that the service be over at a, an abs right to the minute, right to the minute. And the, the preacher says, well, what if the announcements go long and the communion goes long and there's an extra song put in there and I've only got 22 minutes or 20 minutes to preach and the guy says, I don't care. You chop it right there. And you find out later that this leader in the church that the main reason that they say that is because they want to beat the denominationalist to the local restaurant and get the best seat. Let me tell you, brethren, there's a problem with that. You want to talk about not abstaining from physical stuff in order to put the Lord first? There's a problem with that. Is today the Lord's day? Is today the Lord's day? Yes, this, yeah, okay, yeah. From when to when? Is, is, is tonight at five or six o'clock the Lord's day as well? Yeah, okay. What if a congregation of the Lord's people decided we are not going to have a Sunday night service? Now, Sunday night services are not something that's required. I understand that. They are not something that's required at all. But what if a congregation of the Lord's people said, we're not going to have Sunday night services. We're not going to teach the word of God anymore. We're not going to do that on Sunday night. That's okay, right? If, that, if that's due to some... some reason, I mean, some, they can decide that. that. That's one thing. But what if they decide that and say, but what we're going to do instead is at 4.30 on Sunday night, we're going to have a cornhole tournament for the church. We're going to have a chili cook-off the next Sunday night for the church. Do you know that I recently, sadly, found a church that done, has done that? They don't have Sunday night services. But it doesn't mean it's because the people won't get together on Sunday night, because Sunday night they're doing worldly things with chili cook-offs and all of that. Now, I'm not judging my brethren, but I'm saying I struggle with that. Because I don't believe that that is the idea here of putting God first on the Lord's day. Just my thought. Second vital and essential point of application when it comes to fasting for people today is more for those who are members of the church and that is, again, fasting was never meant to be a substitute for godly living. In this very same passage that we talked about that from, Isaiah 58, 1 through 13, God tells us that there's more to fasting. The kind of fasting that he wants, there's more to it than just stopping eating for a while to focus on him. It's more than just physically going without food and other things for time to set your heart and mind on him. God lets you know that the kind of fasting he approves of includes the carrying through with the doing of his will, which you so seriously indicated you were interested in seeking. Isaiah chapter 58, again, verses 5 through 7, look at it. What does it say? 
Is it a fast that I have chosen? They're fasting, but it's just not the fast God has chosen. Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? There's that synonymous terminology again. Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? God says, is that all there is to fasting? Is just, just bowing your head and, and going without and, 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 and struggling and showing that you're, you're sacrificing? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? God saying, do you think that's really what I had in mind? He said, no. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Isn't it to share your bread with the hungry, bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked and you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? God said, isn't the fast that I have chosen a little more than just bowing your head? Isn't it? Isn't it denying yourself worldly stuff in order to share and carry out my will? Isn't that really the fast I want? God says that you take care of the needy and that you, you do these things that he's listed. He said, that's, that's a fast I'm talking about. And God goes on to say how much he will reward that. Our final passage of the morning is very similar. It is Zechariah chapter 7, if you would turn there with me, and then we shall close have a similar situation here. Verse 1 of Zechariah. If you're having trouble finding Zechariah, it's not a book we use a lot. It's just before the New Testament. Matthew, you back up through Matthew and then Malachi and you come to Zechariah. Chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to read fast for time's sake. Sounds like a contradiction to the lesson. I'm not going to read that fast. All right. <laughs> Chapter 7, verse 1. Now in the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Shislev, when the people sent Sherezer with Regimelech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets saying, should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Should we keep on fasting? Is God even hearing us? That's kind of the question, okay? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priest, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? You see the question? They said, Oh, should we just keep on fasting and bowing our heads and, and doing this? And, and does God care? Is the implication? And God, so God comes back and he said, Look, all those times you did that, was it really for me? Was it really fasting that I accepted, that I want, and were you really doing it for me or not? Good question. What was their purpose? He goes on from there. When you eat, verse 6, and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? He said, isn't this whole thing about more about you than me, the way you're doing it? Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited? You look, instead of just sitting there and bowing your heads and, and doing the same thing all the time, shouldn't you have been doing what I asked you to? Shouldn't you have been abstaining from worldly stuff to do what I asked you to? Isn't that the fast? I, see, this is very similar to what we just read in Isaiah, 5, Isaiah 58, 5 through 7. Verse 8 of Zechariah 7, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. In other words, this is what the fast that I'm talking about. Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien, the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. God says, that's what I'm talking about. Get rid of all that worldly stuff and do what I'm asking you to do. Live for me. 
But, verse 11, they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, stopped their ears so they could not hear. They made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed and they would not hear, they called out and I would not listen, says the Lord. What is the message of Zechariah 7? The message is this. The mere ritual of fasting, like the Pharisees did, the mere ritual of fasting without the reality of obeying is a meaningless gesture to the Lord God Almighty. That is not the form of fasting that he desires or has chosen or approves of. So this morning as we close, I just want to say this when it comes to fasting in any form. Whether it is a time of great personal joy or trial, a time of great personal challenge or celebration. A time of great personal remorse, sadness, depression, anxiety in your life. Or whether it is a time of congregationally seeking God's blessing or direction. Or even when it comes to abstaining from the world's delights where we can control that in order to assemble with the saints at every opportunity possible on the Lord's day, and then going out to live what we've learned the rest of the week. I want to leave you with the words of Brother Landon Rowell on a sermon series he preached years ago on fasting. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, as the occasion arises, to take advantage of what fasting offers you. It offers a unique opportunity to humble your soul and to seek God's help. Let's make certain we are taking advantage of such a great opportunity to draw closer to God in our lives. Commanded by God? Nope. Beneficial in your life? Yup. Choice is yours. Just like this morning, the choice is yours. If you've never obeyed the gospel to become a member of the Lord's church, if you've heard that Jesus is indeed the, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and you believe that, and you are willing to confess him as Lord, and you are willing to repent of your sins, to turn to God and say, I'm not going to live for sin anymore, and to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, we'd love to have you do that this morning. God leaves that choice up to you. God's done everything he can possibly do. Everything he can do except make that one choice for you. The choice is yours. The blessings and benefits are eternal life in heaven with God and to have every sin you have ever committed washed away. What an awesome God we serve. <clears throat> if you've already done that, made that choice, perhaps in your life as a Christian, you've made some choices you wish you hadn't. Maybe you've gotten out there a little ways away from the truth that you know that you need to be living and you've chosen some bad things and you need God's forgiveness or somebody else's forgiveness or the church's forgiveness. We will pray for you. You have that choice to make this morning too. There's no need to leave this room until you are as right with God as you can be and we'll help you any way that we can. But if you have either of those needs or maybe just a study of something that we've said that we can, any way we can help you out. God wants you as close to him as you are willing to get. How close are you willing to get as we stand and sing? <clears throat>